Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast, your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. My name is Robert Winfrey, and I'm your host for this show. Per usual, let's get this out of the way at the top of the show. If you would, please engage with the product. Uh, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, if you could give a star rating and a review, uh, that would be very, very helpful. Uh, Whatever your again, whatever your podcast medium of choice happens to be, interact with this just a little bit. It all helps more. And if you've done that, please share it. Uh, it's the only other thing you can do. If you're already subscribed, and I assume you are because you're listening to this, if you've positively reviewed the show, if you've done everything you can, please share. I assume you have. If you have some kind of social media. Uh, you know, online social media thing, be that Twitter, Facebook, uh, what else do people use? I don't know. I'm very behind the times on social media. But if you could share it there, or if you just know people in person that you think would be interested, please encourage them to give it a listen. Uh, Alright, now that's out of the way. We've got a heck of a show tonight. We've got stuff to talk about. Last night, UFC 266. I... Off the top of my head, I'm not going to say best card of the year. Uh, let me have a quick look back to the pay-per-view events that we've had this thus far. Um, hmm. Better. 62, maybe? No, not 262. Not 263. 263 wasn't bad. Uh, Roy McGregor 3? No, no. Uh, oh, I can't say that was a better card. Certainly not 265, which wasn't devoid of good fights by any stretch of the imagination, but... I already went over 262. Hang on, where did we start the year? 257. Maybe this was the best of the year. Hang on. This was better than 257. Wasn't bad, but this was better. 258. Usman and Burns. Better than that. 259 was Blahovich and Adesanya. Yeah, this was better than that. Uh, sorry, th- that side was just me remembering that was Jan and Sterling and the crap show that spun out of that. Which we'll go more into go into more detail on that a little bit later. 260 was better than 260. Uh, again, not the 260 was 260 wasn't bad. 261. Okay, may 261 might give this a run for its money. Um. So 261 would be a one I'd have to you'd have to dig deep into into the nitty gritty on that. But yeah, so we're 261 or 266 are probably the best pay per view cards of the year thus far. Now I don't really keep track of stuff like that, but on occasion for the purposes of discussing, uh, you know, talking points on the podcast, it gets brought up. That was so we'll be talking about that card. That was a that was a if you bought that pay per view. I feel very, very confident saying you got your money's worth. That was 
that was value. That was a value entertainment-wise purchase. Uh, I talk on I talk boxing on occasion here, so we'll be talking a little bit about uh, the big boxing heavyweight fight that took that wrapped up just before 266 started the prelims. Uh, Alexander Usyk defeating Anthony Joshua for f- three of the four big heavyweight titles in boxing and got a bunch of the others. I think the big ones he got were what the WBO, the WBA, and the IBF. But I think the one Fury has is the WBC. Uh, forgive me. There's a he. Uh, Usyk won more than those three belts, but a bunch of those are just. I mean, I hate to say they don't count, because that's a little bit dismissive, but boxing's boxing has a problem with the, the sheer number of sanctioning bodies and whatnot, so some of them carry less prestige than others. But he's now got three of the four big belts, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, we have a preview, because the machine keeps turning. This coming Saturday, there will be an event, and then we have some news. Not a lot of good news this week, to be quite candid. But we'll be counterbalancing that, hopefully, by talking about some really good fights. So hopefully that balances out. All right. This could be a long one, so that's way too much preamble for me. So, uh, let's move into this. Last night, UFC 266. If you're interested in my full live, uh, I did this live, my play-by-play, round-by-round scoring, you can find that uh, in the MMAZona411mania.com. So if you would, please uh, give that a read. If you're so inclined, leave a comment. That's I could ask for the metrics for stuff that I do. You know, how many clicks does it get? Uh, you know, how much traffic does it draw? I don't. Partially because I'm afraid to, and just to see how little what I do matters. Uh, but if you leave a comment, I'd appreciate it. I know there's a few of you that do, uh, even if all you do is come by and say, hey, I appreciate your work. And that uh, that means a lot more to me than I thought it did. I spent a lot. I'd still do this even with smaller audiences. I mean, I don't have a. I don't have the biggest audience in the world. But I will. I will generally take the quality of of the people that you know the fans that follow what I do versus being part of a larger site. But the comment section is a wasteland. Uh, just as a. Uh, I, I might. I might prefer you know, a smaller but higher quality kind of fan base. Uh, not that I'm necessarily sure you're fans of me. Now that I think about it, that seems extremely... Uh, it seems a little bit egotistical. Uh, anyway, I don't... I think for a long time I underestimated uh, what it means to me to see that you guys are there. So... Because uh, you know, went through a... Occasionally you go through a big stretch where there's just nothing that's generating a lot of buzz. So I'm, you know, watching these things for about six hours. I'm typing them up. I'm finding, you know, uh, clips of various finishes and, you know, I'm doing my thing. And it just seems like nobody cares. And I, like I said, I don't think I fully appreciated how much it meant to me personally that there are those of you who do, uh, n- you know, not just read but comment. And I'm not trying to guilt you into into engaging in some big thing, but I that is more to say thank you. 
than to me try and say, please, you know, uh, how dare you, you know, read and not comment or anything. Like, I know people do that. I do that all the time on other people's work. You know, I, I, sometimes there's nothing to say. But or maybe I should cause me, maybe this should give me a little bit of pause and reflection about that personally. Uh, it, it just, it really, it really means a lot uh, that you guys uh, choose to follow my work. Because Lord knows there's a lot of places you could go. So I, before I get into the fights, I just, uh, there was a lot, this comes up a little bit maybe because there was a big stretch on this card. Like almost everything pre-main card where I, uh, where I, it didn't seem like anyone was, you know, reading. Uh, so when you, and I know there's people that do, and I, I don't begrudge anyone deciding that you're li you have other things to do with your life than watch every prelim on a UFC event. Like I'm not this is not me saying how dare you not be a you know quote unquote better fan. Life happens. And some and some weeks in particular, you look at the events and you go, right, you know, this is a six hour broadcast. You know, not everyone has six hours out of the day to dedicate to this. Uh but and then you guys started showing up, and I, I could feel that it it felt different to me. You know, I, I as I click over on the onto the actual page on occasion and check and just see if anyone's hanging out or whatnot. And when you guys started, you know, kind of filtering in there, uh, it, it meant a lot. It it really did. So I I just really want to say thank you guys. Uh, all right, enough of the sentimentality. We're here to talk about fights. <laughs> but uh, as always, a sincere thank you to everyone. Main event. For the UFC featherweight champion, Alexander Volkanovsky defeats Brian Ortega via unanimous decision. Scores as follows. 49-46, 50-45, and 50-44. Doing this live, I was 50-44. The fifth round is the one that I'm least confident in. Uh, I, that one Ortega could have won. I did, however, give Vol give Volkanovski a 10-8 fourth, and it's a close enough margin call that I'm not I am not going to sit here and yell at anyone who didn't give him a 10-8. I've done that in the past, when some judges have looked at a round in particular and gone, you know what, no 10-9, and I I've felt the need to vent on occasion, but. Uh, this is one of those cases. I thought it. I thought he won it by a wide enough margin, my opinion. And but it was enough of a like I said, enough of a margin call that I'm not up in arms over it. And if you only went ten nine, I don't think that's wrong. Um. So, if I'd given Ortega the fifth, and I think you can, I think the fifth is a, the fifth legitimately could go either way. So, best case scenario, mine would have been 49-45 uh, for Volkanovski. I, man, I don't even know, I mean, sorry, as I bumped my mic. There's a pretty obvious place to start, and that would be the third round. So, let me just get this out of the way about the third round. The third round of this fight is one of the best rounds of featherweight action you'll ever see. And I don't just mean in terms of technique, or purely in terms of action. It has plenty of both. Uh, 
Looking back on the course of the featherweight title in the UFC, there's not a lot of rounds like this in the following ways. We have had very high-paced, high-action featherweight title fights. I mean, you're more than welcome to look at any Max Holloway title fight, and you will find it. We have had very, very technical uh, featherweight title fights. See again, Max Holloway in certain fights. See Volkanovski. Look, see Volkanovski's two fights with Max Holloway. You will not find a better display of technical prowess than those two fights. I, you're just not really going to find it. It's. I don't think, however, we've had a singular round that encompasses exceptional technique, high-paced action. And wild swings in momentum. Fights at featherweight, especially at the featherweight title scene, fights have had, you know, progressions, ups and downs. Again, if you want to talk about the second fight between Holloway and Volkanovski, Holloway winning the first two rounds, then Volkanovski having to rally to win the last three. Like, that's that's some high drama, if you look at the arc of that fight. But each individual round didn't really vary a whole lot. This round was bonkers. Uh, absolutely bonkers. Volkanovski starts off, he's won the first two rounds. Starts off doing a lot of the same things that he's done already that are helping him win. He's landing decent kicks. He's uh, He's got really good expl- clo- distance closing and he's crashing distance and landing. He's angling out. Ortega's jab is working when he's throwing it. Ortega is finding decent punches. I don't. I need to be clear about that. And then, uh, as Volkanovski is backing Ortega up, which he did a lot, and lands a couple of punches, but Ortega lands a pretty good. I think it was a right, but Ortega switches his stance enough. I I wouldn't swear to it. And it off balances Volkanovski a little bit, and he kind of winds up on his knees. It again off balances more than really hurts. And Ortega grabs a guillotine choke and pushes him over, so Ortega is now has a mounted guillotine. And that should have been it. I don't... I mean, if I wanted to get, like, really technical and I had slightly different camera angles to work with, maybe I could go over how Volkanovski escaped. But that choke... In that spot, 99.9% of humanity is tapping out or unconscious. I don't know how he did it. The combination of appropriate technique and just intestinal fortitude that that Volkanovsky showed there to get through that. But he did. He escaped. Reversed position, like he gave up, I think he technically gave up his back for half a second, came up on a single leg, and Ortega flops to his back, Volkanovski gets into his guard, lands some blows, and then Ortega throws up a triangle, and it's tight, and he underhooks the leg, and he hits the angle right, and it's like, you think it's like, both of these, either of these should have ended it, by all rights, and he escapes again, and he ends that round just bombing on Ortega, standing over him in full guard and just dropping cinder blocks onto him. 
I mean, Ortega might have been saved by the bell a little bit. <laughs> then, again, the fourth round that I thought was 10-8, uh, Ortega doesn't even really get up after the third round. He's just laying there. He's kind of in his own corner, which helped him. But his team helped, you know, kind of gets him up, and he sucks it up and comes out. And uh, this time around, again, a lot of, a lot more of the same on the feet from Volkanovski. A lot of kicks. Uh, he's very good about landing either outside calf kicks, inside leg kicks. He was throwing up a lot of lead leg body kicks. He was getting countered a little bit off of it, too. Became a little bit reliant on it. Uh, in fact, he did mostly lead leg kicking. It, it, not that he never threw the rear leg, but there was a lot of lead leg kicks. It, it kind of got him in trouble. It just became a touch predictable. Uh, to the extent that Volkanovski is predictable, which is barely at all in some respects. Uh, they clinch up and Ortega jumps for an anaconda choke. Uh, and it gets not that close. I mean, Volkanovski actually is he's kind of like half defending and relaxing in a position, gives the thumbs up. And he's, he's on his back a little bit. He's just kind of like, all right, we're working from here. And just to make sure everyone knows, no, I'm good, especially the ref. And he you know, gets out of it. it. I mean, even that even that anaconda choke. Like, Volkanovski never looked like he was in fight-ending trouble there. A lot of people in that same position would have made a couple of wrong moves, and they might have been toast. But he gets on top, and he just kind of resumes bombing on Ortega for the vast majority of that round. And I don't know what Brian Ortega's chin is made of. But that man is superhumanly tough. Uh... I mean, look at the beating he took from Max Holloway, if you want another example. He didn't even get knocked down in that fight. I'm 90% sure. I'd have to double-check that, but I'm almost certain. He didn't get knocked down. And Max Holloway put a historic beating on him. That's not the worst beating in featherweight history or in UFC history. That's now been surpassed by Max Holloway and Calvin Cater. But, in all honesty... If if Brian Ortega's corner doesn't stop that between rounds four and five, if they let Ortega come out and just try to zombie his way through the fifth round with Max, uh, I think Max might have put numbers up that would have been better than even what he did to Cater. Which is saying something, because that is, histor- numerically speaking, the worst beating in UFC history. Which is saying a lot. I mean, he is just... He just will not... I don't know what you have to do to stop Brian Ortega. Like, you have to get the doctor to stop him. I don't... I mean, he can be submitted, I assume. I mean, his skill level in that area of the game is clearly superb. But in theory, you could submit him. If he keeps taking beatings like this, someone's gonna... Someone's gonna, you know, punch his ticket. Like, you can't absorb damage like this on the regular. And not have not have that add up. You just can't do it. Nobody can. But he just and then came back and arguably won the fifth. Like he was trying. He was finding good punches. I, I don't mean to downplay what he did successfully. His stance switching, it didn't completely throw off Volkanovski, but uh, it opened up some avenues for him at times that you know. Being a good stance switcher, being a good switch fighter will open those things up for you. It's one of the val- it's one of the reasons potentially to learn how to fight from both stances. And I'm not here to get into the philosophical debates about 
learning how to switch fight effectively or just really mastering one stance. Like that's a that like I said, that's a philosophical debate. You have schools of thought that put forth different arguments. There's but there's there's no obje- I don't think there's really an objective measurement about which is better. Right, but one of the things that being a good switch hitter can do for you is opening up some of these avenues, some you know, certain step-through attacks, or uh, one of the nice ones is like throwing a... You throw a power hand punch, so a cross or an overhand, and then you step back and then jab with that same hand again as they're trying to come in and counter you, which I think he caught Volkanovski with once or twice. Uh, Ortega's jab, just a straight jab, was doing work at times. Volkanovski, because he was so... Um, Kind of erratic with it. Half the time he was good about timing it to be like he and Volkanovski were just like splitting jabs at the same time. Excuse me, at the same time. Other times it was just he had a feel for a bit of like rhythm or timing, or he'd see something defensively. It's like okay, now I jab, and it would work. He didn't really build off of it all that much, which was a bit of a problem. But as a standalone weapon, his jab is not bad. It just He struggled a bit to deal with Volkanovski's jab, which was a problem, and Volkanovski builds off of his jab very, very well. Uh, that, that really was kind of the story of this. Ortega has good weapons, but I think I said this last week. I don't think Ortega has fully, uh, has fully integrated all of his disparate parts. His striking is not bad. His defense still has a few issues, but he's worked tremendously hard on it and has improved a lot. He deserves credit for that. But his striking doesn't really integrate with his jujitsu, uh, which is also very, very good. Uh, argue, his jujitsu is better than his striking. Like, I, that shouldn't even be a question. But they don't, again, they don't really blend, and his takedown game isn't great. His corner was calling for a blast double leg, and I think Jack Slack... Like, I, I was a little bit chuckling watching it. Like, I don't think Ortega's double-legged anyone, ever, in the UFC. Uh, and I think... So Jack Slack pointed out, you know, calling, asking Ortega for a blast double is the nude, like, Dean Thomas telling Tyron Woodley I need combinations. It's this thing that will very clearly help your game and is potentially open given how you relate to your opponent in some respects. I mean, what's going on on each side. But they just never do it. For whatever... I don't mean to say that, you know... I mean, Tyron Woodley's the third best welterweight ever. He's behind only GSP and Usman by, I think, most reasonable metrics. So, him not being able to throw a tremendous amount of combinations, this isn't some damning indictment on the totality of his career. It is, however, an observation about his style. Somewhat the same with Brian Ortega. A, a good, if Brian Ortega had a good takedown game, imagine how much more dangerous he'd be. Because what he does now is just... He, he, he will get some takedowns out of the clinch. But mostly what he does is, if it's not that he's... He's jumping for stuff. Like, you get into the clinch, and he he jumps for something. And I don't mean just, like, pull, pulls guard lazily, like, oh, I'm tired, I'm going to pull guard. If you've never seen someone who really knows how to pull guard, it's a skill in and of itself. It's not just flopping onto your back. But he, he jumps for stuff, or he counters you when you try to take him down. It's kind of the other bit that plays. 
but it's if he had a good takedown game, like that would benefit him tremendously. And so his coach saying, "Hey, if, you know the way Volkanovski's standing opposite you, and you know, kind of some of the some of his entries, they leave him open for a blast double leg." Now Volkanovski's takedown defense is obviously very good, but if we're some of that's relative to who he's fighting. He's gonna fight Ortega, who's not a big takedown artist, different than he would, you know, different than he did Chad Mendez, who obviously is more of a takedown threat. But his corner's saying, "Hey, the blast double's there." What, especially once he commits to coming forward. You touch him a few times, he's going to try to counter, duck under, and double-leg him. It's a good call. Like that, That's not bad advice. But it's just not something Ortega's really shown a tremendous amount of proficiency in. Uh, and you know, so, ultimately, you know, Ortega falls short again, takes another pretty bad beating along the way. His, his face got messed up, man. Almost as bad as Hol- what Holloway did to him. Not quite as bad. I don't think quite as bad, but almost like his, um, both of his eyes, his right eye in particular, um, his nose was busted. They kind of bonked heads at one point. And I think that's what caused his nose issue, but he just, his face got messed up, uh, by Volkanovsky. Uh, this, this was a great fight. This, I don't know if it'll be fight of the year at the end of the year. I don't. I I tend to like before I do the year-end awards thing. I try to go back and rewatch all of my big nominees, because so I, I don't want recency bias to play too much of a factor. But this was a darn good fight. This was a really, really good fight with some crazy momentum swings, some high drama. Um, let me talk about Ortega first for just a second, because this is gonna dovetail into Volkanovski. Um, oh, sorry, my original point. I remember what it was now. Yay me. Uh, the point about Brian Ortega is I don't think he's really got a fully cohesive game. And I don't think that's too crazy a statement. He's got good pieces, some very, very good pieces, but he doesn't really have the full thing blended together. Uh, and sometimes, it, look, he achieved a lot without uh, without that, right? Got all the way to a title fight without it. Showed a bit more of it when he fought uh, the Korean Zombie. Some of that was exacerbated by how Chan Sung Jung chooses to fight. But you, know, you can only fight the guy in front of you. And it just became very, very apparent when he's fighting someone who is very much a well-rounded fighter. Now, Volkanovski can fight you anywhere. And... That gives him tremendous latitude, and he flows from state to state, and it lets him mix different things into other places. He's very, very good about finding elbows in the clinch and breaking the clinch. He's good about controlling you. He didn't get a whole lot of it here. Uh, Credit to Ortega, actually, for this. His clinch breaking was quite good, both of them. Neither of these two guys seem to want to hang out in the clinch. Uh, I think Volkanovski was very aware of Ortega's ability to jump for things, and Ortega was very mindful about winding up in a bad position where he could be controlled. And they both just kind of decided this is not a spot we want to spend a tremendous amount of time in. So anytime one of them was trying for it, the other was good about uh, disengaging. But Volkanovski is very good about fighting you wherever he wants to fight you because that's where he's got the best chance of winning. And... 
that's not something Brian Ortega has. If he's better than you on the ground, and he's better than most people on the ground, his mechanisms for getting you there aren't great. And his uh, his boxing is pretty good, especially his punching, and he's got power, but he doesn't really integrate it with his kicks as well as he could, and he doesn't change distances with it as good as he could. His uh, His clinch game in particular is... There's a reason he jumps for a lot of stuff from there, because I don't think he's terribly comfortable fighting in the clinch as its own thing. And lest I'm repeating myself here, but this is not a damning indictment of the man's career and abilities. Because he's clearly an exceptional featherweight. And this is just... uh, And there are plenty of very, very good fighters that have areas that they use to transition rather than as an end unto itself, and sometimes it, that only becomes a problem, it really becomes a problem, when you meet someone who's good about forcing you to fight in this area for a prolonged period of time that you aren't as proficient, well, this area that you are not as proficient in. So his ability to clinch break instead of be controlled in the clinch uh, was actually a really nice addition to his game, I thought. But he's just, he doesn't really have the full kind of cohesive package ironed out yet. And he still can. I, I, this is not doom and gloom. This is not going, well, he's had so many fights. If he doesn't figure it out now, he never will. I don't think that's true at all. But that is something he needs to figure. I do think that is something he needs to address. He needs to address being able to shift through gears a lot more fluidly than he does. Uh, But one of the things that he does exceptionally well, and this became very, very clear in this fight, and then someone else, uh, I think it was Luke Thomas, I heard phrase it this way, so I'm going to steal a little bit of his point, and hopefully, uh, maybe, because he was, uh, I hate to say do it better, because I don't know that I do anything better than uh, a lot of of more popular uh, people who do this, but maybe in a slightly different way. Um... Submit the the submission game is about uh, progression, right? You start in one position and then you follow steps to get to the end result of your opponent submitting. Now, if you're the more um, rudimentary understanding of this becomes very, very if you've ever you know seen newbies or been a newbie, uh, and I I don't mean that uncharitably. I just I mean that. As purely as a descriptor of someone who is new to what they're doing, it's very obvious we are in this position, and these are the steps we take to pass guard, and these are the steps we take to isolate an arm, and these are the steps we like that that sort of progression. Higher level grappling, especially the highest level, they move through these very quickly, and they use them, and they use threats to set up other passes and. Uh, you can listen to people who know a lot more than I do about this stuff. Talk about it if you're more interested in that. But even at the highest level, you try not to skip steps because that tends, unless you're, I mean, even if you're really good, you try not to skip steps because that gets you the loss of position that will causes your submission hold not to work or gives someone an escape, etc. Uh, and if you haven't heard it, I think it's on YouTube. The uh, the Joe Rogan experience with John Danaher when he breaks down Gordon Ryan defeating Cyborg at uh, the ADCC event. 
Uh, it's absolutely fascinating and well worth your time to listen to, but he goes through the individual steps that are going on. So you, even at the highest level, you tend to see we start at A and we go to Z. And along the way, we're going to hit, these, you know, we're going to go through the alphabet until we get to the end result. This is true of every submission. Even if you, some of them, it's a lot more hidden. So, you know, take a guillotine choke, which I'm going to dovetail into this Volkanovsky thing. You get your, you know, getting your arm around, getting your your arm caught around the neck, you know, that, that kind of, you know, catch or grab around there. That's a step along the phase. And then you have to get your forearm under the chin. And then you have to get your hands together. And then you have to decide whether you're going low elbow or high elbow, whether their arm is in or not. You know, these are all you know, things along the way to try and finish in this choke. And it's... And... Again, the, you go through all these steps, and sometimes they're very visible to the outside observer. Like, how is your le- how are the legs getting across? You know, going for the armbar, pinching the knees together, extending the hips instead of just pulling straight back. Like these are some of these are observable. Some of them are not. Like you can't always see how someone's hands are together going for a guillotine choke, and which grip they're using because that matters. Brian Ortega has a gift, and I don't know how else to say it, because. It's not just hard work. If it was just the fact that he had hard work, that he worked hard at this, other people would be able to do what he does reliably. Right? That, that's kind of what hard work is supposed to represent. This is what is achievable by anyone if you work hard at it and follow established best practices. If you... What separates, you know, someone who has worked very hard from someone who has... The people who, at, at that very, like, top end, like, how do you learn how to write? Okay, like, the basic, pre, the basic you know, criteria and the building blocks for teaching someone who does not know a language to understanding how to read and write in that language are fairly well established. There's not a tremendous amount of variation here. So what separates, you know, someone in sixth grade and most, the vast majority of sixth graders in the United States education system are, should be about as proficient with the English language as anyone else. They have achieved a decent, a good level, or, you know, even someone who, take a high school graduate if you wanted to go that far. So what separates the average 18-year-old high school graduate from Shakespeare. And that, that might have made a bunch of you roll your eyes, but hear me out. You know, what did Shakespeare have that anyone graduating high school in th- this year doesn't? You know, what, what, what does he have that they don't? I mean, he actually, given how the English language has changed since Victorian, I mean Victorian, since Elizabethan times, you could argue it's even a slightly different language. Uh, certainly, con- certainly contextually, it's very different uh, and slang-wise, but that's true of any language. Like, what's the difference? Or, you know, even if you wanted to take someone who's a published author, if we wanted to you know, extend this just a little bit further, what's the difference between a published author and Shakespeare? It's not even that they're, you know, 
and the answer ultimately is, and this might be a slightly poetic way to put it, but they've got a gift, right? Shakespeare had a gift, and he worked hard, and you, know, you have to work hard to maximize that. But ultimately, there is something ephemeral, something magical almost, about people who have just these gifts. If you've ever seen someone who's uh, extremely analytical, and you you know watch them talk about the things that they are you know, very good about analyzing, you come away going, dude, I never, I never looked at that that way. I've seen that. I've read this book. I've seen this movie. I've listened to this album thousands of times, and I never noticed X. And uh, the same is true with, with athletics. Some people just have a gift, and it it only really works when they work hard to maximize it. Brian Ortega has a gift for getting from A to Z like that. Watch how fast he gets that mounted guillotine on Volkanovsky. Watch how fast that is. And he... I mean, listen to what Volkanovsky said about it after the fact. Like, somebody asked him, you know, at the post-fight presser, how, asked, people asked him how tight was that guillotine. And he said, you know, it's, oh crap, I'm about to... I'm going to paraphrase because I try not to swear. It's, oh crap, I'm about to lose the title tight. Go back to some of his other fights. When he guillotines Hanato Moicano. Hanato Moicano is not a chump on the ground at all. And watch how fast, you know, Moicano comes in for a body lock and, like, snapping your fingers, right? Ortega wraps the head, gets, and gets his arm in finishing position, jumps body triangle, and we're done. You know, he does the same thing to Cub Swanson. Cub Swanson has seen and done it all. I mean, done it all might be a bit of a stretch, but like, you think no one's ever jumped a guillotine on Cub Swanson before? I, I Between training and real fights, I imagine hundreds of times. Thousands. He just... And the triangle choke that uh, Ortega threw up you know, well, not that long later. Like He just gets from the barest starting point of a submission to the end point of, oh crap, your toast. So quickly. Look at, this is not a joke. Look back at any of the fights that he's won via submission, and there's a few of them. And watch most of the time that bit after he gets it like, after he gets the barest position to when he gets it locked is lightning. And what follows is not necessarily him having to make a ton of adjustments. There's usually a few. Because even, you know, stuff like guillotines or triangles, there's always little adjustments that are going on to really kind of clamp everything down. He's not making big adjustments. It's more his opponent having to take that, you know, half second or so to realize, oh, I'm... I'm beaten. Like, everything was going, especially the Moicano fight, you know, things were going his way. 
And I'm a, he's a really good grappler, so I'm going to get a takedown and I'm, you know, going to work from top position and maybe ride out this round a little bit because I think I've won it. And I think he would have won on the scorecards. I, I forget what the official scorecards were. And in the time he goes from locking around the body to getting the takedown, he's done. It's, it is it is absolutely remarkable, and it's one of those things that just is a gift that Brian Ortega has. You can't put it any other way, because it's not really replicable. He just is, that is something he is exceptional at, is getting starting point to end point in the blink of an eye. And he almost never compromises, you know, some of the steps along the way that would get him in trouble. It just, it happens so fast. And that, that is an exceptional thing that he's capable of. And this moves on to, so I, I wanted to give him that credit because it is remarkable. And this dovetails into Volkanovsky because, like I said, I, I don't know how he survived that mounted guillotine. I, it doesn't make sense. Even if you break that down step by step, I'm sure if you went, you know, like frame by frame, you could see exactly what he did. He hand fought here. He opened up this little bit of space on his neck here by doing this with his hands and this with his legs. And then, you know, like you could. It's not that you can't f track it like it's not one of these you know, unsolved mysteries things. But that doesn't happen, right? Same kind of thing with uh, you know, when Charles Oliveira had that armbar on Tony Ferguson. I don't know how Tony Ferguson didn't tap. Anyone else would have. Uh, anyone else? I can't say that Tony Ferguson is literally the only person in human history that would not tap to that armbar in that position when he fought Charles Oliveira. But you could probably count on one hand the number of other people on Earth that are not tapping out to that armbar. That's how few there are. If you put anyone else in that position that, uh, that Volkanovsky was in with that mounted guillotine, and maybe it's a little bit unfair to... You know, say if Brian Ortega gets a start with this mounted guillotine choke, who else is going to get out of it? But th that's kind of the point. Is Max Holloway getting out of that? And this is not to say that Max Holloway is, you know, somehow less a lesser fighter than Volkanovski. I'd, because this is not me trying to dump on Max. This is me saying, as exceptional as Max Holloway is, and he absolutely is ex an exceptional, all-time great fighter, Max Holloway. You getting out of that guillotine? I don't think that he would. I don't know that if you put Volkanovski, if that same position comes about a second time, I don't know that Volkanovski gets out of it a second time. But on that, you know, in that moment, he did something that you might, you le you legitimately might never see another fighter pull off an escape like that from that position again. 
uh, with someone of Ortega's proficiency applying it. Like, look, could you know, could any decent MMA fighter, uh, if if I got them in that choke, you know, could they escape my mounted guillotine like that? Almost certainly. I mean, you'd have to be, you know, a full-on... Uh, I couldn't say a full-on script, because that's a bad position. I mean, that's a bad position. So, maybe there's some really lower-end guys. But you know, that that's kind of the point, right? Like that That's such a bad position that even someone who is not nearly that good could make much better fighters and grapplers tap out in that position. Brian Ortega might know that position more thoroughly than most people on Earth. And Volkanovski escaped. And then came back to win the round. Like, can we just talk for a minute about Alexander Volkanovski? I'll, I promise not to go on too much of a tangent. He got booed coming into this fight. And I know a lot of people didn't agree with the scoring of his second fight with Max Holloway. I've made my... I scored it for Volkanovski and I've made my case for it and I'm not I'm not here to rehash that debate. But this guy was being criminally underappreciated coming into this fight and th- maybe the drama and the action that went into this fight will go a long way toward getting him some more goodwill. But that man has won 20 fights in a row. Okay? Now, that's not the longest winning streak in MMA history. But you don't win that many fights in a row by accident. Alexander Volkanovsky has never lost a fight at lightweight. Well, he has several. He has never lost a fight at featherweight. Where he's the current champion. His only career loss was, what, his second professional fight that was up at welterweight? I want to make sure it was his second. His second or third. Uh, oh, sorry, it was his fourth fight. So he was 3-0 and coming into that fight. And then le- exited at 3-1. and So, sorry. But welterweight. Never lost at lightweight. Never lost at featherweight. And think about what those divisions are. Those are not divisions that you have sustained success in by accident. They are very, very difficult divisions, in fact, to do that. He's never lost in the UFC. Think about this for another bit about this to just kind of... last thing. I, maybe the last thing I'll say about Volkanovski in this case. Look at his last three opponents. Four. Sorry, his last four unique opponents. Over his last five fights. Chad Mendez. Jose Aldo. Max Holloway and Brian Ortega. He TKO'd Mendez in the second. Now, Mendez might have basically retired him. Was that Mendez's last UFC fight? I want to double check that. Yeah. He retired Chad Mendez. (laughs) Damn. Uh, But then we look at Jose Aldo, Max Holloway twice, and Brian Ortega. Volkanovski sent Jose Aldo out of the featherweight division. 
Max had beaten and finished Jose Aldo twice, but for whatever reason, it was Volkanovski that sent him down to bantamweight. He beat Max Holloway twice. And now Brian Ortega. All of those by unanimous decision. In 18 combined rounds, Jose Aldo, Max Holloway, and Brian Ortega have not been able to beat this guy. I mean... <laughs> That kind of says it all. I mean, if you take, if you take Jose, the fights between, if you take the three fighters, Jose Aldo, Max Holloway, Brian Ortega, between all three of them, I think they they have somewhat unanimously won a whopping five rounds out of 18 total. Aldo didn't win a round. Ortega on one scorecard won one round. So for the sake of argument, let's say he didn't win a round. I know the fifth was close, but just two judges didn't give it to him. So for the sake of argument, let's say he didn't win a round. Aldo was Aldo was 30-27 on all three scorecards. The 245 fight between Max and, and uh, Volkanovski. One judge gave Volkanovski all five rounds, which might be a bit of a stretch, but I also... Uh, he won three rounds on the other two scorecards, and then yeah, he won at least three round. He won three rounds on two of the judges' scorecards to beat Max the second time. So maybe, so again, somewhat maybe they've won five of eighteen combined rounds of fighting with that man. Volkanovski is an amazing fighter. He is incredibly good at stopping your game. And that may not seem like a whole lot, but he if you're good enough to make that work against Max Holloway and Jose Aldo and Brian Ortega, you are exceptional. He is so good at fainting you, at backing he had all he had uh Volkanovsky uh, Ortega, sorry. He had Ortega backing up pretty much every round except parts of the 5th. He backed him into the fence over and over and over and over again. He fainted him. He countered him. He collapsed distance and would land punches. And he sniped him at distance. I mean, and he did that to Ortega here. He did it to Max twice. I don't know where he ranks amongst best featherweights of all time. Because that gets a little bit dicey. He's only got, you know, the two title defenses right now. But, man. You you beat the guys he's beaten. And you, you shut down the guys that he's shut down. He does not get enough credit. He absolutely does not for what he's able to do. Uh... He's good everywhere. He can fight you at long range. He can fight you in the pocket. He's not impossible to hurt, but hard to hurt. He's good at fighting you in the clinch. He's something else funny. The three submission attempts that Brian Ortega threw at him, the mounted guillotine, the triangle choke, and then the anaconda, the anaconda coming in fourth round instead of the third. Those are the first submissions legitimately attempted on him in his entire UFC run. 
if we go back through the rest of it briefly, just Yusuke Kasuya, Mizuto Hirota, Shane Young, Jeremy Kennedy, Darren Elkins, Chad Mendez, Jose Aldo, Max Holloway, Max Holloway. None of those guys even got to try a submission on him. And some of those fights, he spent a lot of time on the mat with them. I mean, that was one of his, like, claims to fame when he started in the UFC was he operated a little bit like Khabib. And I, I think he... His grappling is very much informed by the Khabib meta instead of the traditional jiu-jitsu meta, which I've discussed at length in the past, and I apologize, I'm not going to go into a big thing about it here. But a brief summation is the jiu-jitsu meta prioritizes advancement in position until you until you uh, expose a submission attempt. But it, it prioritizes moving from a from one position to an ostensibly better position. What one of the things Khabib did, and this was revolutionary, and I don't say that lightly, he prioritized positions where he had a degree of control and then would maintain that. So he didn't really try to pass, ha especially towards the latter part of his career when he really had this dialed in. He didn't try to pass a whole lot. If he got you into half guard, he'd just smash you. You, know, you might be able to hip escape to full guard, but it, look how many times he tried to pass full guard. It wasn't all that often. He would if you really gave it to him, but it was not his priority. His priority was control and damage. I mean, the number of times, if you look at Khabib's fights, where other people would try to jump for the back with hooks, and he's, no, I'm gonna stay, keeping the, I'm gonna ride your leg. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna sit on this leg, and I'm gonna strip whichever hand you try to post with, try and build up back up. And I'm just going to punch you in the face the whole time. Volkanovsky employs much more the Khabib strategy. He prioritizes control position and the ability to maintain it while inflicting damage over positional dominance that jiu-jitsu tends to favor. You watch jiu-jitsu practitioners still in MMA because it still works. Like, this is not a one is better than the other. But he spent a lot of time on the mat with some of those guys, and they never got a legitimate submission attempt on him. Uh, we really need to respect what Volkanovsky has accomplished. I don't know who's going to beat him. Logically, I, I, they made this fight, and I, I don't want to get too deep into the making of this fight. Uh, but the UFC tried to is has like tried to sign for one of the upcoming events, uh, a main event between Max Holloway and Yair Rodriguez. They've tried to make this fight a couple of times, and assuming it happens, I favor Max handily and then uh but if they fight a third time like i i picked volkanovsky in the rematch i can't remember if i picked him in their first fight or not i think i leaned towards holloway because it's max holloway but like max might be able to beat him i mean he showed he came darn close in their even if you scored the fight for Volkanovski like I did in their rematch, you can't deny how close that fight was. That fight hinges on one round. There is one swing round in that fight. And that's that's darn close to winning. Max might be able to figure it out. But he's had ten rounds to do it so far, and he hasn't been able to officially get it done. 
Maybe the third time's the charm for Max Holloway? I don't know. But I don't know who's going to beat Volkanovski, but you are going to have to be... Uh, I think I, I can only quote this. I've seen other people say it, so I, forgive me. I don't know who I heard say it first. But you're going to have to be a special fighter, and you're going to have to have a special night at the office if you're going to beat this guy. Uh, respect to Alexander Volkanovsky. He gutted through bad positions. He inflicted damage. And he fought like a champion. And I, I can't say it any better than that. So, big, big kudos to him. Oh, last thing I want to say. I heard this before. Again, I think this was Luke Thomas. But I think it deserves repeating. Max Holloway and Alexander Volkanovsky are messing this division up. And I don't mean it, and I don't mean to say that like they need to be removed or that they need to change uh, change weight classes. I mean it in the following ways. Volkanovsky retired Chad Mendez. S- straight up retired him from the sport. I know there were other considerations, but that was the last fight. Jose Aldo was stopped twice by Max, beaten by Hall by Volkanovsky and moved to bantamweight. They ran maybe the greatest featherweight of all time out of the division. Look what those two combined did to Brian Ortega. Like, look at his face, man. After both of their fights, it's eerily similar. Like They beat the crap out of that guy. Look what Max Holloway just did to Calvin Cater. The worst beating numerically, in UFC history. Watch what Holloway potentially does to Yair Rodriguez. Young, talented, athletic, up-and-comer. The UFC's always had big plans for him. That's why they've kind of had his back through a bunch of his... uh, His screw-ups might be a bit... Other fighters in in similar positions to what Yair Rodriguez has done would be treated very differently. That's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, watch what Max Holloway might do to that guy. Like these two, if you have, if you sign on the dotted line to fight either of them, they might mess you up in ways that are hard to come back from, physically and mentally. So, uh, big big ups to both men. This was your fight of the night, deservedly so. One of the best fights of the year. Uh, uh, tremendous, tremendous effort from both men and still champion Alexander Volkanovsky. Let's start giving that man his due. Yeah, people, please. I'm not asking you to be a fan. Okay. If you're not a fan of the, a fan of his, whatever fandom is in fandom is entirely personal and usually devoid of logic, which is okay. It's fandom, but we need to start respecting his body of work, yeah? Even if you don't like the guy. Fair enough. But he's the best featherweight in the world. Now, that doesn't mean he's unbeatable. The best lose all the time. I've said this before. Whoever the best NFL team is at the end of the season, sometimes the best NFL team doesn't even win the Super Bowl. It's rare, rarer, but it happens. But, you know, they lose a game along the way. The best fighters have lost fights. Okay, don't, nobody say Floyd. Okay, please, don't say Floyd Mayweather. I know. Floyd is the outlier here. But 
even the very best fighters have a loss on the record here or there. It it doesn't mean unbeatable. It, but I do think he's the best featherweight in the world. Might Max be able to beat him? Yeah, Max is Max is capable of beating anybody. He's that good. Because if it's not Volkanovski, it's Max Holloway. Like those are the two best. That's one and one A, and I don't know what and who wins will largely come down to the night more than anything else. But at a bare minimum, you know, we need to start acknowledging just just how great Alexander Volkanovsky is, please. Uh, tremendous fight. All right, moving on, because I talked about that for probably a bit too long. <laughs> uh, we should be able to go a little bit faster through the rest of these. Um, Comment event. Valentina Shevchenko defeats Lauren Murphy via TKO, punches and elbows, four minutes of the fourth round. I don't have a whole lot to say here. I... Look, you have to keep the machine turning, right? And sometimes that means uh, a fighter that no one would have given a shot to gets a shot that they... and are able to capitalize and... You know, I mean, you could... Look, bo- the boxing thing. Alexander Usyk was the mandatory for Anthony Joshua, who was only made mandatory after Deontay Wilder successfully sued Tyson Fury to invoke their rematch clause. The original plan, and this was in place, all sanctioning bodies had basically signed off on the Fury-Joshua fight. And Deontay Wilder said, no, wait, I have a mandatory rematch uh, for... After Fury knocked him, after Fury had knocked him out, he had a rematch clause. The legal argument from the Fury team was you had not, you hadn't invoked anything. We hadn't set a date by this particular period. We thought we were free and clear to negotiate a fight. Without that, and again, the courts saw differently, and I, I don't need to get into the whole bit there. But that fight between Fury and Joshua was basically set. Everyone was negotiating. Everyone seemed to be on pace. Everyone wanted the fight. Once that fight fell through, because of Deontay Wilder, the, I believe it was the WBO. Don't quote me on that, but I think, I believe, Usyk was the mandatory WBO challenger. And he would, if he were not the mandatory challenger, he would not have gotten that fight. And he shocked a portion of the world and became the champion. And this happens on occasion. It's part of why the mandatory system exists in boxing, for various sanctioning bodies. The UFC doesn't have this because fighters have much fewer rights. But there is a bit of the same kind of philosophy. At various points, someone's just going to have accrued enough work to have earned a shot at the champion. Now, the, the UFC is very happy to, bend, to you know, step over these people for other financial opportunities or for just fighters that they happen to like more for whatever reason. But Lauren Murphy had won five fights in a row. Two of those were split decisions that I scored against her, but c'est la vie, right? You win five fights in a row. I think most of those overranked contenders, certainly the last like three or three, at a bare minimum the last three, you should get a title shot. I mean, that just makes sense. And sometimes that means someone that is a no-hoper 
And I, I... That seems like I'm being overly dismissive of Lauren Murphy, and I'm trying not to be. So give me a sec. I will talk about Murphy in more specific terms. I'm speaking broadly. Sometimes with the mandatory model, you get someone that doesn't really have a chance. And they go in there and maybe they shock the world, but that's very, 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 very rare. More likely, you get something like this. Where this fight was not competitive. This fight was not close. I don't think there's a single continuous fifth, five... I don't think there's a single set of ten continuous seconds you can score for Lauren Murphy in this fight. None. Not one minute of one round went to Lauren Murphy. I don't think even... I don't think one thirty-second segment of one round went to Murphy. She was on the outside and getting chewed up. And then she'd kind of try to close distance and get countered. She'd try to clinch and get thrown around by... I I really try not to be one of these people who just gushes profusely about Valentina Shevchenko. Because there are people out there who are ludicrously hyperbolic about this. And I, I try very hard not to be that one of those people. But Murphy had nothing. I mean, she land, she was credited with three strikes in the first round, and I don't I don't know that I would agree with that even. <laughs> I'd have to rewatch the fight. I, I just I think that might have been three total and maybe none of them were significant, like that that kind of thing. She had nothing. On the outside, she was getting chewed up with, you know, body kicks. Anytime she tried to close distance, she was eating a right hook. Because Valentina has kind of some set combinations that she goes to unless you make her deviate. Anytime they clinched up, Valentina does not get enough credit for her combination of physical strength and technique when it comes to you know, close proximity. Uh... Shevchenko overpowered Jessica Andrade, who is a ludicrously strong woman. And she has great technique to go along with this. I don't mean to say she's just a bodybuilder. But when you're fighting, there's a physical reality. And Valentina Shevchenko is physically strong. And that, that gets a little bit overlooked. Anytime they clinched up, she got ragdolled. Then in the fourth, she got hit with a, a right hook that stumbled her, a bit of a head kick, Shevchenko with a combination, they clinched up, she gets a takedown and pounds her out from half guard. <sighs> Again, I'm not trying to be insulting or dismissive of Lauren Murphy. You win five fights in a row, and look, man, I, I thought she lost a few of those, but the judges, two of the judges that count scored it for her, so you, you play the hand you're dealt. And that's not her fault. No fighter had fighters don't choose how judges score fights. Not at the end of it. You not really. Scoring being accurate or inaccurate, not on the fighters as a general rule. And she has had a tremendous up and down journey. You, know, you get five fights in a row is nothing to sneeze at. Even in slightly weaker divisions, even fighting tough fights to split decisions, that is nothing to sneeze at. So I, I really don't want to 
you know, pretend that Lauren Murphy is some, uh, she's not, this is going to be dismissive, but she's not Priscilla Cachuea, right? Like, she has demonstrated the ability to fight and win at the UFC level in, against ranked opposition, in some cases, highly ranked opposition. That's, that's a heck of an accomplishment, and that doesn't happen by accident. And that needs to be acknowledged. So I want to make sure and give her that credit. But I'm also here to, you know, be honest. She was never in this fight. Ever. I don't know who's going to beat Valentina at flyweight. I don't. Someone will at some point if she fights long enough. It is inevitable. Even if it's her slipping on a banana peel and, you know, spraying and you know, blowing out her knee. Like, happens. And I know there were some people who tried. You can tell the the talking heads are getting a little bit desperate when they say, you know, yeah, she's Shevchenko is dominant and she's got five title defenses and she's looking a class above the opposition. And boy, didn't we all just say the same things about Ronda Rousey before she fought Holly Holm and I wanted to put my head through a wall. Lauren Murphy is not Holly Holm. I don't think there's anyone in the flyweight division who poses the same kinds of uh, serious stylistic challenges to Valentina that Holly did to Ronda. Holly was a Holly was the same. Ronda beat up a lot of women smaller than her. And look, you fight who's in front of you. That's all you can do. Holly was one of the first women she fought that was bigger than her. Holly was one of the first actual strikers, and I don't mean that as someone who, like, I couldn't throw hands, but actually knows how to strike. And that, those were, and knows footwork and, you know, ring craft. Most of the people Ronda fought were a little bit like her. We, we kind of run into each other and see what happens. Uh, I mean, Misha Tate doesn't have great footwork. Sorry. Uh, and is a grappler first and foremost. And, you know, Misha would never beat Ronda. Just not even to say that Ronda's a world's better fighter than Misha. If we talk about well-roundedness, I think there's an argument. Just stylistically, like Misha doesn't really fight in a way that troubles Ronda. You, know, you didn't when they were both active. And for a long time, people who know how to watch fights and break down skill sets said Holly Holm poses a legitimate threat to Ronda Rousey. Through, you know, her, again, through her length, through her strength, through her footwork, through her ability to stick and move. Like, this is a legitimate threat. There were very intelligent people who were picking Holly against Ronda. I, there's no one we're talking, there's no one we're talking about like that at, at Flyweight, right? Who are we talking about that we say, so-and-so might has these avenues that are legitimate avenues to beating Valentina Shevchenko. This is not me saying Valentina's unbeatable. No one's unbeatable. Amanda Nunes has done it twice. Bear in mind, I thought Valentina won the second fight, but, you know. Uh, my opinion on that matters, you know, very, very little. But if we're talking just about flyweight, I don't know who has the skills on the roster right now to really trouble her. Now, 
there's a bunch of fighters that you can say have very good skills. I don't know who's going to be able to really deal with Valentina as a well-rounded threat. And again, someone's going to do it at some point. It's inevitable if you run this process enough. It happens. But I don't know who. And frankly, when it happens, at this point, it's going to be a massive shock. She is that much above her peers uh, at 125. I don't know who's next. Uh, Jessica Andrade, we'll get to in a second. She won a fight and then seemed to indicate she's moving back to 115. So... We'll have to see, but uh, for the moment, women's flyweight is Valentina Shevchenko's world. Uh, and I don't know who's going to beat her. I, I really don't. Uh, moving on. Okay, we had an odd fight here in some respects. Robbie Lawler, this was a five-round fight. Didn't go five, so it became irrelevant. But Robbie Lawler defeats the returning Nick Diaz via TKO. This is listed as a retirement, and that needs to be properly quantified. Nick Diaz did not retire from fighting. He simply had enough. Uh, 44 seconds of the third round. Uh, the finishing sequence, if you happen to care, they're kind of in close. Robbie Lawler lands a right hook that kind of staggers Diaz. Then as Diaz is down on a knee, he lands a left uppercut that busts up his nose. Diaz flops, flops is a bit strong, but he kind of looks to lean back, anticipating Lawler following him to the ground. Lawler thinks about it, walks away and says, no, get up. I'm not going to grapple with you. The referee tells Nick Diaz to get up. Nick Diaz does not get up. The referee looks down at him, says, get up, and Nick Diaz, get up or we're done. And Nick Diaz kind of says, yeah, we're done. And the ref waves it off. Like That's what happened. Um, This is a weird fight, man. First of all, this was middleweight. It was changed to a middleweight fight, like, during fight week. This was signed for welterweight, and then during the fight week, Nick Diaz said, you know, how about middleweight? And apparently Robbie Lawler was just, you know, willing to be accommodating of that. Um, I don't even know where to start talking about this. I said last week I had no idea what to expect out of this fight. And we got something that was... A mix of sad, entertaining, and certainly not the worst version of this fight that could have existed. Um, Robbie Lawler came out like a bat out of hell, which is not uncommon for old Rob Lawler. Uh, he'll <laughs> he come he'll come after you in that opening minute. Uh, he was landing body shots. He, he did a lot of damage to Nick Diaz's body. Uh, I think I tweeted in the second round, you know, Nick Diaz really doesn't like those body shots, and Lawler might be able to get him out of there, and then not too much longer he did. Um, they just kind of fought in a phone booth for the full fight, for as long as it lasted. Anytime they were at range, they're both southpaws, Lawler would land calf kicks, or body kicks. Neither of which Diaz liked. Then they just he'd kind of he just kind of back Diaz into the fence, and then they'd get you know in the pho proverbial phone booth. And they'd both roll and swing and roll and swing and you know dig to the body, move up to the head, back and forth and back and forth. And I think Grabaka Hitman on Twitter 
said it this way, and I think he's this is the most accurate. Nick Diaz managed to look simultaneously slow, a little bit old, and also exactly like himself. If you watch this version of Nick Diaz, everything that goes into the classic Nick Diaz fights is there, pretty much. The crappy kicks, the the body work, the emphasis on the hands, and he, he still very much looked like Nick Diaz in the fighting. Just older, slower. Uh, he didn't... He did not appear to be in the best physical shape. Uh, this is not me trying to... Look, he was in good shape. I... I am not fat-shaming the man, okay? He did not look fat. He looked probably in slightly better shape than I am right now. Uh, But once you kind of saw him and Lawler opposite each other and they kind of got going, it became like... You could see he's not really... Nick was not really at the peak of his physical condition. And look, some of that's age, man. He's 38 years old. Like You're just not going to be the same guy you were... 10, even 10 years ago. 28 and 38 is huge. Say nothing of 15 years, hypothetically. So, didn't look to be in the best physical condition. Came out, made a... He did not embarrass himself. Uh, And I absolutely mean that. He came out and he put on a good accounting. He landed some decent punches. He just... Between the physical condition and I think his style has been surpassed. Uh, If you look back at what both the Diaz brothers did at various points in their careers, in some respects, they were ahead of the curve. You know, they were when they were doing like triathlons for conditioning, you didn't see a whole lot of that. Uh, They they were may not have been the first, but they were certainly among the vanguard of professional MMA fighters uh, using other uh, endurance sporting events or endurance training to maximize what they could do in the cage. That's not really enough anymore. Uh, They had had pretty good combination work at a time when combination work was something of a forgotten or neglected part of the game. Nick did a lot of body-to-head combinations at a time when 90% of the... When the average, even the average high-level MMA fighter was almost exclusively a headhunter. When you're fighting mostly people who just go to the head, go to the head, go to the head, your ability to kind of roll with that, dig the body a few times, slow them down, and kill kill them to the body to set up the head, that looks really good. It's a very, very old boxing technique that was just kind of getting caught up in up in MMA, but they were, you know, slightly ahead of the curve in some respects, and that is just not true anymore. Uh, his game was devoid of all, pretty much all modern best practices for MMA fighting. Uh, and I'm not going to bag on the guy too much about that, because at this point, who cares? I mean, this fight... Didn't get any guy anywhere near a title shot. Lawler was on a four-fight losing streak, and Diaz hadn't fought in six years. This was just meant to be a fun little nostalgia action fight for the fans, and it delivered that. Uh, 
I'm not really emotionally attached to either Nick Diaz or Robbie Lawler the way other people are, so this didn't... The nostalgia factor wasn't really here for me. Uh, I would... I would say... Boy, there were some really good fights on this card, for the record. This was one of the better ones if we're just talking about action. There wasn't a whole lot of breaks in this fight. The big question coming out of this, obviously, is... Are we going to see Nick Diaz fight again? I'm going to... I don't know. He looked... Simultaneously... Like there was enough gas still left in the tank to maybe make that argument and just old and slow enough to maybe make the argument that let's stop before this gets really sad. And I don't know where I fall on that personally. I think there are a few conditions. If he wants to fight again, I think I, for again, I'm a fan. I think that I as a fan have a couple of conditions that I want, that would want to go into another Nick Diaz fight in, you know, 2021 or, you know, for, or 2022. Within a year, okay? Within a calendar year, no more than 18 months. I would want it to be at 170. I think 185 is pretty clearly not his weight class at this point. He wanted the 185 weight because he didn't want to cut weight. And I don't blame the guy. Weight cutting sucks, and if you're not if you're not reasonably in the title picture, then, you know, you wanting to fight where you perform best makes more sense than other. But I think welterweight is a would be a is a better fit for him for his next fight. So I'd want it to be there. And I'd want it to be another either another kind of either legend or. Like, I'd say pseudo legend. But, um. Like, uh, I think Jorge Masvidal's name got bandied. You know, Masvidal is... Um, pr- he's not in the title picture right now after after Usman knocked him. <sighs> I mean, the F out. Good grief, that knockout. But, uh, sorry. point there. Masvidal might be a little bit out of the you know, the title picture... Masvidal, Nick Diaz at welterweight? I could go with that. Um, but, you know, that's the kind of thing we're looking at at this point. He shouldn't be fighting really ranked contenders. I mean, the fact that he was like, hey, I'd really like to fight Kamaru Usman. Buddy, Usman would have done awful, awful things to Nick Diaz. I mean, just horrible. You know? He shouldn't be fighting a ranked contender. You, know, you you need a fun style of fight, you know, like Masvidal kind of thing to make that work. And I don't think there's a whole lot of those at welterweight to be had. And that's that's not really his fault. But, you know, the WWE, WWE the UFC, Freudian slip, the UFC doesn't really do the Legends tour thing all that well or all that often so i don't if he does choose this if he came out if he you know thinks about it for a bit and reflects on the fight and goes yeah i don't think you know i I don't think i really want to you know cut the weight i training at this point is just more of a pain i'm almost 40 
I this is just not something I really want to be engaged in at this point at this level. You know, I'm not going to blame the man. You know, this is not a guy whose you know, credentials are even remotely in in debate, right? Nick's a fighter. And there's not really any discussion about that. Is he still, you know, a top of the food chain guy, almost 40? No. But this is not a guy whose guts, whose fighting spirit is should ever be questioned by anyone. You know, that man's... Uh, that man's bona fides is... Uh, is set in stone. Right? That is... His credentials and his his career are beyond contestation in that respect. I'm not calling the man the best fighter ever by any stretch of the imagination, but his place in the history of the sport in that particular discussion is not can't be questioned. You can't question the fighting spirit of Nick Diaz. Is he a guy that at 40 just got his nose busted after you know? two rounds of hard fighting against a guy still in his prime, still, you know, waking up to run at five in the morning and Robbie Lawler, you know, okay, maybe after, maybe after 10 minutes of that, when this not going your way, and just, you know what? I've had enough of this fight. Like, that's actually a smart call. <laughs> you know, th- this is not a guy who experienced a modicum of adversity and you know, he didn't, I, he didn't Bob sap it, right? He reached the point when he went, all right, I think we're done, and was done, and that's admirable. A lot of people don't have that kind of, you know, self-awareness when it comes to where they are in the in a fight. I don't know what's next for either guy. You know, they're both kind of just doing the fight a few more times. Their career winds down thing. Um, Lawler needed the win bad. If he dropped this, he might have been bounced. All right. Uh, jeez. Don't want this to take forever. <laughs> Next up, Curtis Blades defeated Jarzinho Rosenstrike via unanimous decision, 30-27 across the boards. I actually gave Rosenstrike the second, but you know, typical Curtis Blades fight. And I, Curtis Blades needed a win pretty badly. You know, he was he had come off of that bad loss to Derek Lewis, and he needed to bounce back. And he got an ugly, uninspired decision win. And, I mean, his right eye was messed up, man. Rosenstrick caught him with a flying knee in the second. And between rounds, they were able to work on it enough to let him come out for the third. But uh, if Rosenstrick had been able to do anything in that third round, they might have stopped it. It was swollen that shot. Uh, <laughs> so, but he needed the win. He got the win. No one cares. <laughs> it's heavyweight. No one cares. Uh, and kicking off the ma- the pay-per-view card, Jessica Andrade defeated Cynthia Calvillo via TKO punches, 454 of the first. Um, Calvillo, she had a lot of hype when she debuted. And she did really well her first few UFC fights. And then it just kind of started falling apart. Uh, I mean, she was, I don't mean to say that she's, you know, completely collapsed. I mean, she had a, she's only lost three times in her entire career, right? That's not, 
That's far from a bad record. But she debuted in the UFC, choked out the first two people she fought, beat Joanne Calderwood clean over three rounds, then lost to Carla Esparza in a fight she should have won, but started making boneheaded decisions in rounds two and three and gave it away. She rebounds, she wins two fights, goes to a draw, bumps up to flyweight, beats Jessica I, which, not the easiest thing to do in the world at flyweight, loses clearly to Chikagian and gets stopped here. Just all of that, mm, all of the oomph that was around her at strawweight when she debuted, it's just faded, man. It's just really faded. Um, she was landing... Uh, needs to be said she was landing good punches here and that that shouldn't be di that shouldn't be dismissed she was able to land on Jessica uh, on Andrade Andrade just didn't care uh, <laughs> I mean you need serious punching power to get Andrade to back off I mean, that woman walked straight through straight into the power punching of Zhang Weili to her losing the title but she walked through, you know, the wood chipper that Joanna and Jacek put in front of her. She, she walked at, <laughs> I mean, she really did walk at Valentina Shevchenko and couldn't get her, uh, and you know, she kind of got chewed up a little bit because of that. But deterring that woman from forward pressure takes something special. And Calvillo, whatever accuracy she was able to get with some of her punches, couldn't do it. And Andrade started going to the body a bit towards the end and then landed a flurry and then just unloaded along the fence. Uh, I mentioned this earlier. Andrade seemed to indicate she was going back down to 115 and wanted a shot at the title, the winner of the upcoming rematch between Rose Namajunas and Zhang Weili. I'm okay with that, uh, to be quite candid. You know, she lost to Zhang, but... What a re... Zhang might win a rematch, but I don't think a rematch would look the same. Uh, and she and Rose are one and one. And I think, I've said this before, man, I think the Ro the way Rose fights over five rounds just seems to inevitably lead to towards favoring Andrade. Three rounds she can win, and she did uh, in their rematch. But five rounds with Andrade, the way that Rose fights is just, it's asking you to do things that are so, so hard to do stylistically to, when you match up with her like that. But So I'd be okay with her getting a shot at either of them, to be quite candid. Strawweight's a little bit light on uh, contenders in some respects. So you wouldn't be... I don't know who you'd be completely screwing over to if you went into that, so... Uh, my take for whatever it's worth. Uh, anyway, that was your main card. As for the prelims, Marab Dwalish really defeated Marlon Marais via TKO. This was punches on the ground. 425 of the second. Man, Marais cannot catch a break. He badly, badly hurt Marab with, uh, with punches in the first round and I mean badly clocked him with a couple of left hooks dropped Dwalish really once or twice uh, just 
just clobbered him. And Dwalish really, who must be made of sterner stuff than most humans, because that same those same punches would have easily ended other fighters. And to be quite candid, there were a couple of moments in this fight when the ref could have stopped it when Murdice was, you know, uh, could have stopped it and stopped, you know, in favor of Murdice. That's a thing that easily could have happened. Uh, Murab, to his credit, was able to, I guess, do enough to keep the ref satisfied, endured these horrible bombs, uh, got on top of Murice and pounded him out, then proceeded to do more of the same in the second en route to getting the finish. Uh, I, I don't have a whole lot. To, uh, sucks for Rice, who might get bounced out of the UFC. This is three in a row for him. Um, just a hard. I mean, he had some hard draws in that fu- in that streak, man. I mean, he fought Corey Sandhagen, one of the best in the world. He fought Rob Font, one of the best in the world, and he fought Mirab Dwalish, really, one of the best and a tough matchup for anyone. He's just he's had a rough go of it. Uh, not had an easy fight, and he got so close to winning this one. But, you know, biggest win of Dwalish Reilly's career, he should be fighting somebody fairly close to the title next. That's a tough guy to beat, man. His motor, his motor does not quit. He just, he does not stop once he gets going. Uh, let's see. Dan Hooker defeated Nazareth Hackpress for unanimous decision. 30-26 twice, won 30-27. Uh, much needed win from Hooker, who was on a bit of a skid. Uh, he fought someone, you know, unranked, but did a did a good job. You know, he was able to land, uh, fought smart uh, when he was fighting long, got, uh, when he got this to the ground, he got on top a few different times. I think it was the second round that could have been 10-8. I didn't go that way, but I can see the argument. Uh, Dan Hooker's just still a really good fighter. Uh, after the fight, he said, you know, Benil, he called out Benil Dariush. You know, yes. Heck yes. Great fight. Make that fight. Uh, Chris Dawkins defeated Shamil Abdurakhimov via TKO punches and elbows. 123 of the second. He... Abdurakhimov basically got saved by the bell in the first, and then Dawkins finished him off in the second. Chris Dawkins is a... I don't know that the man's ever going to be champion. But I think after the fight, he said he wanted to fight Stipe, or the winner of Blades and Rosenstroik, or... Who was the third? Or John Jones. No, 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 sorry. Blades was the one who wanted John Jones. Who was the other one Dawkins mentioned? He had some other name. Uh, someone else that he said, I want I want Stipe, I want the winner of Blades and Rosenstroik, or I want... That's what I will find out in a second. Uh, Tabora, Marcin Tabora. You know, all three of those could make sense. Uh, I don't know which one I'd prefer. Hmm. 
I, I genuinely don't know. All of those would be good fights. I mean, the Stipe fight, if he wants to get to the belt, a fight with Stipe would get, if he's able to fight and then beat Stipe Miocic, that, that's the fastest path to a title shot, or whatever that's worth. But Dawkins is legit, man. He's a, he's got fast hands. He's light for a heavyweight. He's got decent footwork. He's, he's a tough out. Uh, Tyler Santos defeated Roxanne Modafferi via unanimous decision, 30-27 across the boards. Uh, you have to respect Roxanne Modafferi. If you don't, you're some kind of ingrate. But I, she's pretty clearly past the best of it. And Santos is kind of on the ascension. It's kind of how this played out. As for the early prelims, Jalen Turner... Boy, Jalen Turner, man. He was an underdog against Urshos Medic. Choked him out in the four, first round. Four minutes and one second with a rear naked choke. Uh, he beat up Medic to, to kind of set that up. Good body work. Good front kicks to the body. Uh, heck... One of the most complete performances Turner has turned in in the UFC. Really good stuff from him. Uh, Nick Maximov defeated Cody Brundage via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the board. It's a decent fight. Matthew Semmelsberger defeated Martin Sano Jr. via knockout, 15 seconds. One punch the man into the dirt. And kicking everything off, Jonathan Pierce with a bit of an upset when he defeated Omar Morales via rear naked choke, uh... 331 of the second. Uh, once Pierce was able to force this to be a constant kind of clinch and fence wrestling battle, he just sapped everything that Morales had out of him with that and got him down, got his back, and choked him out in the second. So that was UFC 266. Uh, really good card. I think the only real duds were I mean, Blades and Rosenstrike was kind of a dud. Um, this was a dud. Maximov and Brundage wasn't great, but it was, but, you know, when that might be the, that or, Sa that or Santos and Mataferi is probably the least interest, apart from Blades and Rosenstrike, those were the other ones that kind of went, eh, they were just okay. But there wasn't a bad fight, Blades and Rosenstrike was a dud, but it wasn't bad, it wasn't actively bad. Uh, it was a, it was a good card all around, and. Uh, the main the main card was absolutely worth the money you paid for it, from where I sit at least. So, yeah, good night of fights. Thank you to everyone who read uh, live or after the fact. I appreciate you all, as I mentioned at the top of the show. Uh, all right, let's. Yeah, gonna be a bit of a long one. Whatever. All right, let's move on. Let's talk a little bit of boxing very briefly. Uh, I've mentioned this before. I mentioned this already, but I'm gonna go into a little bit more detail. Uh. This fight ended and the decision was announced right before the prelims started for UFC 266. I was very grateful for that, actually. But uh, Alexander Usyk was able to defeat Anthony Joshua to become heavyweight champion. He now holds three of the four big belts. And a great fight. Uh, it was a really good fight from both men. An exceptional performance out of Usyk. Um, Alexander Uska is one of the, there are only two men who have unified all the major titles at cruiserweight. One of them is Evander Holyfield. The other is Alexander Usyk. Um, 
And that's not an easy thing to do. Now, cruiserweight in boxing is... I mean, let me find the right weight class here. Yeah, the upper bound limit, the, the top limit for cruiserweight is 200 pounds. Um, light heavyweight in boxing, I want to say, is 170. Um, double check that real fast. Yeah, 175. Um, is kind of between super middleweight, which is 168, and then cruiserweight, which is definitely 200. Uh, unifying all the cruiserweight... Cruiserweight's an odd division to kind of look at historically. Because most of the great cruiserweights either try their hand at heavyweight at some point. Uh, and some of them have a decent success, some of them don't. And it, it's kind of a forgotten division in a lot of respects in that way. Now... Holyfield was the first one to unify uh, all of the belts. Now, uh, oh, jeez. Really? Okay, apparently there was somebody else that did it. Um, by the name of O'Neill Bell, which ought to tell you how forgotten most cruiserweights are. I, forgot, I completely forgot this gentleman existed. Um... Then he, even then, he lost one of the belts. and was stripped of it, but still. Uh, Usyk is the only other one recently to have uh, to have re to have unified all the major belts. I mean, if you look at the other like great, I think the other couple of great cruiserweight champions are guys like James Tony and David Hay. And what are they more remembered for? They're being great cruiserweights, or what they were able to do at heavyweight. Uh, so, anyway, neither here nor there in some respects, but Usyk unified all the cruiserweight titles and moved up to heavyweight, where he had a couple of fights and then became the mandatory challenger. And this fight was, if you like boxing, this was, and I don't mean that dismissively, I mean, if you understand that boxing is not MMA, and you understand kind of how uh, the, uh, the art and the science of boxing, this was a great fight. Usyk was able to constantly mess up Joshua with timing and feints and a good pace. He was constantly on his toes, constantly moving, landing good punches. Joshua in the middle rounds kind of was able to rally a bit. He started going to the body a bit more. Um, Usyk's legs slowed just a bit. Uh, what's the other major thing that... Joshua stopped... Um, he stopped kind of... Ch he didn't really chase Usyk, that's the wrong word. But he stopped doing as much kind of following as he had been in some respects and got a little bit more on the front foot, uh, which helped him tremendously. And then Usyk adjusted to that and then won the last couple of rounds. I, I think my scorecard was 8-4. to four. I think it was eight rounds, 8 rounds to 4 for Usyk, which I think is probably the most common score that I saw. Um... Usyk's left hand, he was able to kind of use movement to bait Joshua into it a few times. His superior footwork, I mean, Usyk was always the better boxer. That That's not a... Anthony Joshua is not a bad boxer, if we're talking technically. 
But Usyk is a very good technician. And was able to bring that to bear and really kind of mess up Joshua's game in some respects. Uh, if Usyk had punching power, this would have been over a lot. He would have, I think he would have stopped him. If, he had, if Usyk had... It's one of the big knocks on Usyk. It's not that he can't finish you. But his finishes tend to be reliant on hitting you with a punch you don't see coming, rather than just having crushing power. And he wobbled Joshua a couple of times with those kinds of punches, but if he had legitimate power, he probably would have had Joshua out of there. Uh, he he moved well, he angled well. Uh, his j Usyk might have the best jab in boxing. And I know that's a bit debatable, and I'm not here to get into the full nuance of it. I say that just so you know, especially for a southpaw. Most southpaws don't have great jabs. Usyk might have, again, one of the best jabs in all of boxing. Uh, and he was able to kind of use that to mess with Joshua. It was a wonderful performance out of Usyk. We'll get an immediate rematch because, of course we will, it's boxing. And, uh, you know, the uh, there's never been a fully unified heavyweight champion since we've got since what boxing people call the four belt era. Since there have become four major recognized titles, uh, no one's held those four. And it's a little bit odd. But, you know, when you have mandatories from a bunch of organizations that can pile up and how hard it is to stay winning and stay healthy, like, it kind of makes sense. Um, and Fury versus Joshua represented that. Fury has the one belt that Joshua doesn't have. And Joshua has all the belts that Fury used to hold. <laughs> uh, because, you know, Joshua got them when he beat Klitschko and... Uh, Fury beat the Fury got them from Klitschko when he beat Klitschko. So, and that's really what that fight represented. Look, it would have been an enormous fight to take place in England. Jo Anthony Joshua is an enormous star in the UK. I mean, if you didn't want watch this fight, if you didn't see it, or at least find the entrances, if there's one of the many knocks you can have on the UFC, uh, their production is very samey, and they tend not to splurge on much of anything. And it leads to homogenized, repetitive fights. Every fighter gets the same entrance. They can have different music, but they all get the same entrance. It's very, very rare the UFC does anything different from a production standpoint. So Anthony Joshua getting an enormous pyrotechnics display in Tottenham Stadium. <laughs> Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Like, you watch that and you go, oh... This is the kind of stuff that, you know, WWE does for a major pay-per-view. That they're tr they treat Anthony Joshua like a star because he is one. And and Fury versus Joshua, two uh two UK guys. One a big star, one, you know, I tend to think Tyson Fury's the best heavyweight of the modern era, my opinion. I there's disagreement about this, but where I stand and that's really what that represented, an enormous payday for everyone, an undisputed champion, and a big spectacle fight for the UK. It would have been enormous. 
And then Wilder sued Fury, and then Joshua fought Usyk, and Usyk upset the apple cart, and you can tell the guys like me, and I say like me because I this tends to be a bit of my thought. If you care about the best fighting the best, then at this point, especially with what Usyk did, is there any real doubt that Tyson Fury would have beat Anthony Joshua? I was favoring Fury the whole way anyway, and seeing what Usyk did, yeah. You know, Tyson Fury, pretty handily. And as far as predictions go, right? But we're losing out, and and I see that argument, and I've made that argument in the past about other things, because that tends to be what I care about, and I get it. But assuming we get Usyk versus Fury, I tend to think Fury beats Wilder. I mean, I, I don't think that's a controversial pick. At this point, I might favor Usyk to beat Joshua in their immediate rematch. If we get Fury versus Usyk to crown the first undisputed champion, Tyson Fury is going to win. But I think Fury, the difference being, I think Fury and Joshua would at least be an entertaining fight. Fury and Usyk is probably the kind of fight you have to be a real boxing nerd, and I say that with love, to enjoy. It's probably, it is not on paper a very pleasing concept. And and that's a little bit what was lost. So, I get it, I get sort of the melancholy about it, but... You know, if we do just want to see the two best at this point, I think that would probably be Fury and Usyk. And, I said Fury. Fury's the best, man. You know, my opinion... He should have beat Wilder in that first fight. I don't know what that judge was smoking who gave it to Wilder. Stopped him clean in the second. I think watching what Usyk did, I think it's pretty clear Fury would have beat Joshua. So how did Fury and Usyk square up? You know, I I think Fury's the best. Now, whether he, whether we get that fight or not, well, that really remains to be seen. So, because boxing. But tremendous fight from Usyk if you're... Uh, if you like boxing, and again, if you like what it means, what boxing as a, as its own thing, um, watch this fight, man. It was a good fight. It's a really good fight. Uh, let's see. What I want to talk about next, if anything. Um, oh, okay. Let's move on to. Oh, we have a fight to preview. Jeez. Uh, fortunately, it shouldn't take all that long. So UFC on ESPN plus 51 will come our way this Saturday. Uh, we're going to go pretty quickly through this. Your main event, Tiago Santos and Johnny Walker. I don't really know how to feel about this. Santos can be hurt. And he's on a pretty serious skid. He lost to John Jones. And I, I still don't know what that judge was smoking that gave that that scored that fight for Santos. I really don't. Then he had, you know, he had moments against Glover Teixeira, but he got beaten and submitted. Then he lost clearly to Rakich, and uh, he has not been the same since that John Jones fight. And, you know, with what was done to his knees in that fight, how could you be? Uh, Walker's just such a wild card. I mean, he's coming off of a win when he needed, but he's been out of action for over a year. I don't know. 
if Santos were, if I think Santos is back to something resembling his, you know, peak physical form, I would favor Santos. As it stands, I think I'm going to lean towards Walker, but I guess who knows? Walker's very wild, and Santos with the with the physical toll that, you know, some of these fights have taken on him, he's a bit hit and miss too, so who knows. Uh, co-main event, Kevin Holland and Kyle Dawkins probably favors Kevin Holland. Uh, he's on a two-fight skit. I mean, Derek Brunson and Marvin Vittori are good middleweights. Dawkins, yeah, he's one and two. Yeah, I'm going to favor Holland. Welterweight fight, Alex Oliveira and Nico Price. That should... That'll be something. That will be something. Oliveira is just 2-5 and five in his last seven on a two-fight losing streak. I mean, not that, you know, Nico Price is tearing up the world or anything. He hasn't won since October of 19. I'm going to favor Price, but... That's just because I think Oliveira's really on the downside of it. Uh, Misha Serkunov is trying his hand at middleweight. He'll fight Kristoff Yatko. That is, a, that is not an easy welcome to that division. Yatko's coming off of a loss to Sean Strickland. Uh, Serkunov lost to Ryan Spann. Like I said, this is middleweight. I'm going to favor Serkunov, but... Uh, not sure about that one. And women's bantamweight, Aspen Ladd and Macy Chasson. Uh, Ladd beat Yana Kunitskaya. That's a fight. Uh, Chasson's on a two-fight winning streak. I'm Logically, this should be Ladd. But I think I'm going to lean towards Chasson and just be prepared to feel stupid. Uh, that's your main card. As for the prelims, Joe Selecki and Jared Gordon. Uh, Jared Gordon's usually good for a watchable fight. Selecki. Selecki's undefeated in the UFC. I mean, his only... Gee. I'm actually going to favor Selecki here, but Gordon... Don't sleep on Jared Gordon. Uh, women's flyweight Antonina Shevchenko and Casey O'Neill should go to Shev... Actually, O'Neill's not bad. Hang on. I'm actually going to go with Casey O'Neill. I, I remember who she is now. Um, won't be shocked if Shevchenko wins, but I'm, I'm actually going to lean towards Casey. Uh, Betch Kohea and Carol Hosa. Women's bantamweight. Hopefully Carol, because Kohea is... I don't, I don't even know what Kohea is doing anymore. Uh, yeah, she is... <laughs> She's on a terrible streak. She is two and five with one draw in her last eight fights. Wins are a split decision over Jessica I, and then she beats Sajara Eubanks. <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> so it should be Hosa. Um, Hosa's been now. Oh, she fought in February. Yeah, Hosa. Uh, Picking Hosa here pretty easily. Uh, Jamie Malarkey will fight Devontae Smith. That Malarkey, he's, he brings it, man. He has brought some crazy fights to the cage, even in defeat. Uh, where's Smith? Beat Justin James in his last fight. This is not a bad fight. 
I'm going to favor Malarkey, but uh, that's a good fight. Uh, let's see. It. Featherweight, Douglas Silva, De Andrade, and whoa. Gaetano Perello? Um, probably De Andrade. Yeah, I think I think De Andrade, but uh, that one could go either way. Uh, bantamweight Alejandro Perez and Johnny Edward. Johnny Edward is still kicking around. Um, let's see Perez, two-fight losing streak. Got knocked out by Song Yedong. He's been out of action for a while. Oh, he had a COVID test. A positive COVID test. Okay. So that's that's kind of what a lot of that was. Okay. Um. Eduardo's been out for a while too. Yeah, Eduardo last fought in June of eighteen. Jeez. Yeah, yeah, picking Perez. Um, we have a couple of other fights that we don't quite have a uh, bout order for yet. Sean Soriano and Fernando Padilla. Feel okay picking Soriano there. Alexander Hernandez was supposed to fight. Who was supposed to fight? Leonardo Santos. Uh, Santos fell out. We're waiting to see if someone will step up for that fight. I'm okay picking Hernandez in the dark there. And at women's bantamweight, Shauna Young and Stephanie Egger. I believe this is Egger's debut. Shauna's gone one and one in the UFC. Whereas. Miss um, Egger. I might be confusing her with someone else. Hang on. I think I am. Yeah, yeah, I am. Egger was... Uh, Egger lost to Tracy Cortez in her UFC debut. I'll pick Young there, I think. But, again, you're talking about women who are still kind of... Uh, let me double-check this about Young. Yeah, we're talking about women with less than 10 fights apiece. Like, there's a lot of room for rapid growth under the right circumstances, so I'm I'm not confident in that pick. Uh, okay, let's move on. So, yeah, sorry, Saturday. I will have coverage of that in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com, so please do come by, say hello, as usual. I appreciate you guys. All right, a uh, couple of fights falling apart. Now, we'll start with the big one. Aljamain Sterling had to withdraw from his title defense against Peter Jan. Linger, due to lingering neck issues, if you'll remember, he had surgery on his neck uh, not that long ago. That's kind of why uh, his fight with... The rematch with Jan was postponed as long as it was, was his uh, neck issues. Um, bantamweight? The top of Bantamweight's in an odd spot all of a sudden here. Um... The UFC's probably going to do an interim title fight. That's the that's where the winds are leaning rather than stripping Aljamain Sterling, which I hate to say I I hate to say this because none of this is Aljamain Sterling's fault, okay? He won the title via DQ after being fouled. He wasn't he, I said this at the time, the not his fault. That was Jan's fault, Jan's stupidity to throw that illegal blow. Sterling wasn't even doing the am I up or am I down thing. He was just straight up sitting on his knees and then got kneed in the head and couldn't continue. That That's not on Sterling. Right? And I'm not going to I'm not going to 
try and pretend that I know whether or not the guy could have continued. This isn't one of those things where a knee came close to him and he took an easy way out. He got kneed in the head illegally. But that's an albatross around your neck. Right? And not his fault. He came out and he fought his butt off. And it wasn't enough based on the way that fight was going. Was not enough to have won that fight, my opinion. Didn't Was certainly not going his way. But circumstance. And then you have an injury that you have to get fixed. And your neck is nothing to play around with. Man, I'm not... I don't mean to suggest otherwise. But... I don't think anyone would complain. I mean, he would, obviously, but I don't think anyone not with without a personal stake in this. Would anyone object to the UFC stripping him of that title? You know, maybe give him first shot back when he comes back, but... Eh, just, I mean, it's just weird in that respect. Here's where this gets a little bit weirder. So, interim title, okay, fine. I'm not a big fan of interim titles, but whatever. The UFC does what they do. TJ Dillashaw, I don't think will be ready in time for UFC 267. He had surgery not that long ago. And, again, I don't begrudge the man. If you're looking at the schedule, you know, you come out of that fight with Corey Sandhagen and you're a little bit beat up, and I think he lost that fight, and you've got something you need to get fixed surgically, you know, hey, go for it. You know, that that's just the calculations you have to make, and if you, that means you can't do a fast turnaround, you... You should not, no fighter should be asked to avoid, to put huge segments of their life on hold, especially if we're talking about your physical health that requires surgery, to potentially be at the whims of a chaotic sport and the UFC, and the somewhat capricious UFC management. That's not right, that's not rational, and I'm not exactly a fan of TJ Dillashaw's either, but, you know, that's what it is. And it does ultimately lead to the point where, your next contender is probably Corey Sandhagen. Now, like I said, I scored Sandhagen Dillashaw for Sandhagen. I I think he got screwed on those scorecards, to be quite candid. But we might now get Sandhagen versus Jan for the interim title. In a fight that might... In a weird fight that might actually put the two best guys against each other. In the sense that if you think Jan is the best bantamweight in the world, and I do, you know, if he's still champion after the Sterling fight, and if the and if the Jan and Dil and if, I mean, if the Sandhagen and Dillashaw fight is scored correctly, this is where we'd wind up. Uh, I know Sean O'Malley made some noise about wanting the fight. Um, you beat an unranked dude on short notice, buddy. Now you, I don't think has Sean O'Malley even beaten a ranked contender. Maybe Chito Vera, maybe Marlon Vera when they fought, maybe. No, Marlon Vera beat him. Who am I thinking of? I'm thinking of somebody else. Has he beaten a ranked contender? Now this is gonna. I'm gonna look this up now because that would be something if. Okay, maybe Thomas Almeida. I want to double check where if Almeida was ranked uh, when they fought. 
Um, no. Neither man was ranked when they fought. But he's never beat, I don't think he's ever beaten a ranked contender. Maybe when he beat Jose Alberto Quinones or Eddie Wineland, they were like bottom. They were like number 15, maybe. But the only ranked guy he's ever fought was Vera, and Vera stopped him. <laughs> no, buddy. You ain't getting that fight. You're not even getting even an interim title shot on the back of... <laughs> on the back of what? Beating Chris Moutinho? I don't say that to dismiss Moutinho, but... In the scope of... You know, in the bantamweight landscape in the UFC... Moutinho's nothing. Uh, <laughs> so we're probably getting Sandhagen and Jan, which, if that happens, will be a great fight. The other fight that fell apart for UFC 267, we were supposed to get Islam Makashev and Rafael Dos Anjos. Dos Anjos needs... He is out with some kind of injury. Apparently he needs surgery. Uh, so... They're now looking for someone to replace him and take on Islam Makashev. Sucks. I was... Kind of sucks. I mean, we all knew how that fight was going to go, right? Like we've seen At this point, we've seen RDA against a bunch of fence wrestlers. We just know how that goes. So, I was looking forward to... I was still kind of looking forward to the fight, so... Uh, but... I'm curious to see who will step up on short notice, you know, if anyone, but someone should. So, UFC 267 now kind of in need of, I think that would be the, uh, I think Sterling and Jan would be the, uh, Sterling Yan was going to be the co-main. So, we'll have to see what comes about from that, but something to pay attention to going forward. Um, Alright, I think the last... Yeah, I think the last thing I have to talk about here, and then I'll check Twitter to see if anything crazy has happened over the last couple of hours. Um, but, I even say, John Jones, my opinion, the greatest U the greatest MMA fighter of all time, if we're just talking about his in-cage ability and his resume, was in Las Vegas. Uh, his fight with Alexander Gustafson was inducted into the UFC Hall of Fame. His The first title fight between those two. Rightfully so, that is, I still believe, the best title fight in UFC light heavyweight history. It's that good of a fight. Well, John was arrested again. This was uh, some kind of, I think there was some kind of domestic issue, uh, along with uh, like a felonious tampering with a vehicle. Um... Just, just not good. I, I, I mean, you can't even pretend to be surprised at this point. You know, it, it's just sad. I mean, John is... John's already the best. Right? And, and I suppose reason there can be a reasonable amount of disagreement as it pertains to this. If you want to get real nudely about who's the best MMA fighter ever. Okay, fine. I will acknowledge a degree that is a that is a largely subjective category, with a handful of pseudo-objective criteria. I'll, I'll give you that. 
And he still might also be one of the... He might also be one of the guys who will go down as a large waste of talent. I don't know the man personally. I don't know what's going on in his life. But that man just can't seem to get out of his own way. And about some stuff like this. Like how, I don't know how difficult it is not to get arrested. I've never been arrested. It's never been a problem for me. <laughs> uh, uh, it's, again, I mean, I, I, I can't pretend to be surprised at this point. You know, it's just, it's just sad. That's, that's really all it is. And I've been a big, big believer in John's ability and John's resume. I've said that before. I think he's still the best fighter ever, but I don't know what's going on with his personal life, but that's, it's just sad. And you just kind of hope that he can maybe get his, get his life together. And we're not talking about purely a professional career. We're talking about how this human being has to live in has to live so i don't know it, it sucks to kind of, and we're going to kind of be ending on that particular downer but uh that's you know that's where we are on that so sucks we'll try to keep you updated here to the extent that more information on this becomes available on that note, let us discuss. Let us check Twitter, see if anything crazy MMA-related is broken, and if not, we will get into plugs and get out of here. Okay, nothing new, so let's get into plugs. Before I do what I'm going to be doing this week, or did last week, uh, I forgot to do this a little bit earlier, but I'm going to do it now. A friend of mine and a occasional contributor to this show, Pat Mullen, uh, needs credit because as soon as they announced Usyk versus Joshua, he was fairly confident and fairly and consistently saying Usyk's going to win. Uh, and he's, I trust Pat's opinion on boxing more than most. So I just wanted to make sure he got a little bit of public acknowledgement for accurately predicting that fight fairly early. Uh, so kudos to you, sir. Uh, always hope to have you back on the podcast at some point in the future, if scheduling and interest allow. Uh, as for my other stuff this week, uh, well, what did I do last week? Uh, last week was the, oh yeah, last week was a triple feature. Myself and Mark Radlich got together to discuss three different movies. Cry Macho, which was released day and date on HBO Max and in theaters starring Clint Eastwood. Uh, Concrete Cowboy starring Idris Elba that released on Netflix a little bit earlier this year. And from a few years back, uh, the uh, Taylor Sheridan, Tyler Sheridan written, uh, Heller High Waters starring, among others, Jeff Bridges and Chris Pine. So we talked about those three movies. You can find that over on the W2M network. We have a lot of fun on that. Had a lot of fun on that show. Mark and I usually have a good time when we talk stuff. Uh, a brief shout out to a few other things from the W2M network. The Mania of WrestleMania feature. If you haven't been following that, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's Mark and Pat, and occasionally Chris Bailey, talking about the history and some of the stories, both on camera and behind the scenes for WrestleMania. This most recent one was WrestleMania's 6 and 7. 
and the excellent podcast that they're that Mark and Pat are doing on the four kings of boxing, Marvin Hagler, Roberto Duran, Sugar Ray Leonard, and Thomas Hearns, uh, did their early re- their early entry into the Tommy Hearns part portion of that. They're segmenting it up, so you do they're doing each of them each of their careers before they all fought each other. Then a few of the different fights are going to be discussed, and then uh, kind of wrap up for each one a little bit later. This was the er, this was the kind of intro to Tommy Hearns, and Mark and Pat talking boxing is pretty much always a good time. That series is excellent, and it follows their excellent history of the heavyweight championship, which you should also listen to if you're at all interested in some of the history of boxing. Um, as for myself, what do I get this week? Um. Per usual, AEW's Dark Elevation on Monday. MLW, I think they're doing the Fusion Alpha again, episode two this Wednesday, so I'll cover that. My my review of episode one of Fusion Alpha is up in the Wrestling Zone of 411 Mania. And WWE Smackdown on Friday. It will be night one of the 2021 draft, for whatever that's worth. Um, last week, all of those, I also covered... Uh, Thursday, I covered Impact Wrestling's weekly television product so you can find all of that in the wrestling zone of 411mania.com if you are so inclined uh i don't think there's a yeah there's not a damn you hollywood this week there's not really a movie coming out we're talking about until next week when we'll talk about uh on the 5th of october when we'll talk about venom 2 let there be carnage bleh yeah, you can just feel my excitement for that particular project. Uh, all right, that's it. There's a bunch of stuff that's re-airing. I actually have a few different Everyone Loves a, Old Everyone Loves a Bad Guy episodes re-airing this week. One for the Symbiotes, and then parts one and two of my James Bond discussion. The Symbiotes discussion features Jason Teasley and uh, I think somebody else. I want to say Ben Cologne is on that. I think he is. I can't remember off the top of my head. And then the James Bond parts one and two is myself and Pat Mullen for the most part. So if you're interested in that, listen to those. Oh, the Sopranos one. Right, everyone loves a bad guy for the Sopranos. Also myself and Pat, now that I think about it. Uh, Anyway, that, so those are all re-airing this week. Those all were, we did those live years ago. And they're just being re-aired as they are moved over to the new network and in conjunction with other stuff that's coming out, so... Uh, if you're so inclined, feel free to listen to those. I appreciate it, even though those are very old, not very old, but they're older podcasts. All right. And then, of course, you have, on Saturday, UFC on ESPN Plus 51. That's it. I'm going to be a somewhat busy boy this week. But until then, thank you all again very much. We'll be back here next week to review UFC on ESPN Plus 51. Saturday, uh, October is a busy month. Every Saturday, there's a UFC event. So we'll also be back to preview UFC on ESPN plus 52. Boy, that's wow. Wow. That is headlined by Mackenzie Dern and Marina Rodriguez, which is not a bad fight. But there is not a lot to be excited on that about on that card. Full preview next week. Hope you'll all be back until then. As usual, thank you for listening, stay safe out there, and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.